WLIW-FM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. Hello, I'm Frank Sesno, and welcome to this special program from WLIW-FM. The American Buffalo, a new two-part four-hour series by Ken Burns, takes viewers on a journey through more than 10,000 years of North American history and across some of the continent's most iconic landscapes, tracing the animal's evolution, significance to the Great Plains, near demise, and relationship to the indigenous people of North America. The American Buffalo premieres on WLIW 21 on October 25th. We want to use the occasion of Ken Burns' film to turn to the Shinnecock Nation here on Long Island to engage in a conversation around this indigenous community's culture, knowledge, and traditions concerning conservation and the natural world, environmental health, and the community. This rich history, built on centuries of indigenous knowledge, reveals timeless lessons and important guideposts as we consider today's challenges and opportunities. I'm so pleased to be joined by Siobhan Smith. She's the environmental director for the Shinnecock Nation and oversees operations of the department, develops conservation initiatives, and supports community outreach, education, and partnerships with outside organizations. She works on a wide range of environmental issues, from conservation to water quality protection, climate change responses, and natural resource conservation to sustainable shellfish harvesting. Thanks for joining us, Siobhan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. We're also joined by Jeremy Dennis. He's a fine art photographer who explores indigenous identity, culture, and assimilation. He's lead artist and president of Ma's House and BIPOC Art Studio. He uses photography and interactive mapping to tell stories and showcase culturally significant Native American sites on Long Island. This has special meaning for Jeremy, who was raised on the Shinnecock Nation Reservation. Jeremy, thanks to you. Uh, thanks for having us. Before we begin, I do want to say that we are joining you today from the ancestral land of the Shinnecock Nation, which historically reached from East Hampton to the Brookhaven Township. I'd like to ask both of you to talk a bit about the relationship between the Shinnecock Nation and the, the natural world. It's a very big question, but it's a very big part of the Shinnecock Nation's culture and, and tradition and history. Siobhan, you want to start us? Sure. I'd be happy to start. One of the things that I think we try really to strive for is to create and to maintain that mutual and beneficial relationship of reciprocity. So even in making our home here on the land and making sure that we have plenty of space um, for people to build homes, for tribal offices, for tribal businesses, recreational area for people, we also have to make sure that there's enough space that continues to exist for all the plants and animals that we share this land with because we have a responsibility to them as well. And I think that's really a big part of what we strive to do is create that balance, maintain that balance, and make sure that all things that are here living and existing together can continue to do so. Jeremy, how do you talk about the Shinnecock Nation and the natural world, that relationship? Um, well, Shinnecock and our uh, indigenous neighbors throughout Long Island, we've always lived in balance with um, harmony with nature. And so, um, so much of our culture and identity and practices are um, both intertwined, dependent, and in acknowledgement of the land. And so every uh, fabric of who we are um, comes from that as the beginning. 
And then um, the, the stewardship, the care for the land is just part of what we've been doing for thousands of years and into the future. Um, we don't see ourselves as uh, separate from that fact. I mentioned that we're doing this program because of the Ken Burns American Buffalo program that's out. Obviously, there were not American Buffalo, certainly not in big numbers uh, on Long Island. And the Plains tribes were uh, in, the, in the Great Plains, vast stretches of land. And your, the Shinnecock Nation is an island nation surrounded by water. How has water affected and shaped the uh, traditional relationship with the natural world? It, it's always fascinating to think about how um, indigenous life looked like before European uh, colonization, but I always envision um, a pretty idyllic state. The idea that all year round you can harvest oysters, uh, live on fish and shellfish. Um, occasionally there would be whaling expeditions and that would last a very long time. And uh, really just a, a boundless amount of resources that you never exhaust, you um, let it come back again and then um, have that um, rotation of accessing different areas. And so having water especially is another way of um, kind of connecting ourselves with other communities. We were always um, canoers. So we would go to uh, present day Connecticut, um, Rhode Island, um, all the way up to Massachusetts and even beyond um, to make those new connections and kinship systems. And so really the water is a thing that um, is such a connecting force, both um, culturally and also uh, socially. Siobhan, what are the community priorities, the Shinnecock priorities with respect to environmental issues? Now this is a space you work in very closely. There are a number of different priorities. I would say that it's very important for those ne the reasons that Jeremy just mentioned are close tie and dependence on the water. I think it really is a dependence on the water, which really makes it important that we are mindful of water quality. What's going into our waters? What's ultimately impacting the food that we're harvesting from the water? What's in the water that we're submerging ourselves in? Because plenty of people spend a lot of time down at the water, not just for swimming and fishing, but as a sense of healing and being close and connected to the water. Lots of times people just go down there and put their feet in the water just to help clear their mind and reconnect. And so it's very important to us to know that that water quality is being protected and maintained and where possible improved. In addition to the quality of it, we all know that water is a powerful force and we're very much concerned about the sea level rise and the shoreline erosion that's taking place on Shinnecock. And most definitely we do live on an island um, and we share the same um, concerns as our neighbors and we're also, our little peninsula is what's coming off of that island. Siobhan, are, are you seeing the, the sea level rise on, on Shinnecock lands already? And in, if so, to what degree? Yes, well, especially particular um, certain tides and certain storm surges, there's an increase in the amount of flooding that we're seeing. Um, just this past beginning of the year, around January, we did take a number of photos. Um, a lot was brought to our attention, especially down by the cemetery area we had experienced a considerable amount of flooding from the storm surge um, that brought the water up to actually some of the headstones had water surrounding them. So the graves were, it's something that we're very concerned about. There are homes that um, are experiencing more flooding in their basements, the rising water temp table, all of that is um, becoming more and more of a concern for the community. 
Jeremy, as you look at the community priorities, the priorities of your community with respect to these environmental issues, um, what do you see that, that goes to the top of the list there? Uh, well, as an artist, I'm always trying to uh, get a sense of what the community finds um, urgent, um, what our community really wants to voice in terms of their opinion and aspirations. And uh, one thing I've noticed um, peaking since 2016 is water access. And so there was one instance where um, we had um, a beach back protest um, in response to the fact that Shinnecock today now has to pay uh, $50 per day to um, access our local Atlantic beaches. So that's something that we're trying to uh, fight to restore our free access to as part of our identity. Um, the other um, interesting thing that's part of our tradition is our canoe journeys. And so we've been um, practicing our right to the water, our right to paddle once again, and have also been um, faced with antagonists who try to uh, dissuade us um, to um, not access the water. Um, there was even a canoe that um, was really well known in the news that um, came from New England all the way down to Shinnecock territory and beyond. And one of the people in the Hamptons ended up um, submerging their boat just due to um, not being used to seeing Native Americans um, in these waterways where there's usually yachts or speedboats or other uh, very expensive vehicles. And so these are just things that, um, as Siobhan said, we want to reunite with the water, spend more time with the water, um, have good relationships with the water. And yet um, just these simple things, we have uh, barriers that we have to overcome. And the solutions are are in grasp, but we've always had um, an unfortunate relationship with our neighbors in terms of that access. What are some of the, you say the solutions are in, are in grasp. What are you referring to? Um, well, for one, um, our beach back solution uh, that we've been proposing to Southampton town is um, we have an enrollment office. Each of our tribal members have a tribal ID and that would be a great way to um, show the booth or the attendant for the parking lot. Um, we're Shinnecock, we should have access to the beach as we have for thousands of years. And so that would be a simple uh, solution to allow us to once again um, thrive uh, culturally and on the water. Um, the other is just the simple fact that um, there are restrictions in terms of um, inlets and other waterways um, not allowing us to pursue our traditional practice of being in simple canoes and paddling. And so we'd love to see um, just may maybe mindsets or laws change to allow, once again, at least Shinnecock to um, have that practice again. Uh, Siobhan, I mentioned when I introduced you to our listening audience that you work on a wide range of environmental issues in your job with the Shinnecock Nation, from water quality protection to climate change responses, you mentioned sea level rise and even sustainable shellfish harvesting. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how traditional Shinnecock teachings, traditional indigenous teachings and culture drive the approaches that the Shinnecock Nation is taking to addressing these concerns and maybe the, the approaches that the wider community could take to addressing these concerns. What can we learn from them? Well, when it came time to really start, begin to make some effort, some initiative towards what we were seeing along the shoreline and from the erosion and the loss of sand and how we could begin to protect ourselves while at the same time not interrupting or 
harmfully impacting nature. We really wanted to make sure that we were continue, we were just really putting back what was already there and reinforcing the plants that were supposed to be there, replacing the sand there, and not so much of that hard armoring. And I think that was something that was very important to all the members in the community, was how can we do this in a way that isn't going to create more damage? And I know that the term thrown around a lot is living shoreline, but for us, it's just putting it back as best we can so that the natural system does what it's going to do. So we actually hand planted individual shoots of beach dune grass. That's what the staff did in coordination with our partners. We had some tribal members come out and volunteer and assist with that. There was uh, planting of eel grass. And rather than having all these uh, sea walls and the bulkheading, we continued to build an oyster reef. And so one of the main areas of our concern, as I mentioned before, was around the flooding around the cemetery. And so where we uh, began working with our partner to put down the foundation and the beginning of that oyster reef was just in that area right there. And we continue to work with, um, you know, local um, schools and agencies to do modeling to see how do we need to shift that oyster reef so that it's creating more protection from the uh, wave energy and from the wind that is naturally occurring. And the shellfish, the sustainable shellfish harvesting? So tribal members for generations and generations and generations have been eating hard clams, mussels, oysters. And part of the work that we're doing is not only trying to increase that natural supply so that it's in the water doing what it's supposed to do, which is creating, um, being a part of the food system and also filtering that water, but at the same time, providing shellfish for tribal members so that when they want to go out on their own and, you know, get some clams for dinner or lunch or whatever, that it's still there and making sure that it's there. And I think that's a part of it is not over harvesting and being mindful that what you're putting in the water is also a living being that needs to thrive and continue to um, multiply and just be mindful of how much you're taking and creating the environment that is hospitable to that species to continue to live and thrive. That is a lesson that, w that we could apply to the much wider community. Jeremy, you, you capture photographic images. I, I mentioned earlier, you tell stories through, through your pictures from around Long Island. Um, tell us about some of those. Tell us about some that, in your view, tell the story of the Shinnecock Nation and, and its traditions um, living with, by, and along the land and water. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so since uh, 2016, I was fortunate to receive funding from a nonprofit called Running Strong for American Indian Youth. They allowed me to uh, pursue a project called On This Site, which is now a public online resource for the uh, public to self-educate, um, have access to uh, Native American history throughout Long Island, New York. And really, um, if, if you're familiar with Long Island, you're never that far away from the water. And so the uh, project contains a lot of uh, landscape photography, but so much of it, <laughs> if you look at the context of mapping and the proximity, um, you're never really in a solid land uh, place. It's always along the shoreline in some capacity. And so um, there is one place that is just famous um, uh, for every Shinnecock tribal member. It's the uh, Circassian uh, shipwreck site in uh, Bridgehampton town off uh, Meekox uh, Bay. And this is one of the sites that I photographed early on 
it's um, sort of a monument to 10 of our Shinnecock um, tribal members who passed away in uh, December 1876, um, all for the uh, sake of trying to preserve a uh, shipping vessel that was um, uh, stuck offshore. And so um, a lot of the project is trying to highlight some of these stories of either resilience, um, celebration, or sometimes a heartbreak in this case. And it's all about trying to create allyship. It's all about highlighting that we're still here as people. And um, I'm in such admiration to uh, Siobhan's work because she's um, quite literally uh, saving the Shinnecock territory on what we have today. And so as an artist, I always try to um, reroute public attention to um, the work that she's doing and our tribe's doing in terms of things that need resources, things that need to be spoken about and um, just bring attention to those things. And so the On The Site project has over uh, 200 sites um, all of these places have our ancestors' footsteps in them and places that we should still connect to today and practice um, our resource gathering, our stewardship, and um, ceremonial practices as well. Siobhan, you know, thinking about that and thinking about the tribal concerns uh, and the environmental changes that we're seeing, it's climate change, it's development, it's overdevelopment, it's um, sea level rise, coastal erosion. Gosh, how do you prioritize all those things? Where do you start? You know, it's really, it really is difficult. But as Jeremy was saying earlier, you really try to provide the community with much information, right? What you want to do is validate what they're seeing and explain to them why it's happening, how it's happening, and then try to garner from that what it is that they see to be um, the main priority. And I think what it comes down to is really, like I said early on, is that water quality. And how do we make sure these waters are still available for not just us, not just for our children, our grandchildren, but beyond that, to still be able to come down to those shorelines and go in that water and safely eat out of that water. And one of the um, projects that we have coming up soon is we're really um, reaching out to Southampton Town to see how we can do that partnership, that co-management, specifically in Hetty Creek. Because Hetty Creek is the side of Shinnecock where our traditional, original oyster hatchery was. And we're in the process. One of the big um, projects that we're undertaking is really trying to restore that hatchery and bring it back so that we can continue to provide the oysters for the water, the clams for the water, all the shellfish that are already there. We really want to support those species and help them develop and survive. But we need to work with the town. And together, we have to decide what are those priorities and acknowledge that the way we're using the water is different. The things that we're doing with um, Shinnecock Bay and Hitty Creek and Old Fort Pond, how we're relying on the water is slightly different than how many of the people in town. I'm not saying that there aren't baymen in the town, but I think for the most part, when people think of the water, it's more of a recreational thing rather than a living part of who we are. And so we really need to get together with representatives of the town and tribal leadership to sit down and say, hey, let's look at Hetty Creek. Let's look at all the things that are impacting that water body and what can we do to improve that water? Because right now it's seasonally closed to shellfishing. And a lot of tribal members early on didn't know that it was closed. Um, the town had a sign on their side of Hetty Creek that lets people know that you can't safely eat out of that water. And so I think the important thing is to make it so that everyone who wants to can safely eat out of that water. So we're really looking forward to speaking with the town and getting that project up and running where we can all get around the table 
and say, this is what we need to do and how we're going to do it to make it so that we're all um, safely accessing water. What do you both think are the biggest misunderstandings uh, about um, the environment from the wider community and the work you're, you're doing, trying to do to preserve it? Well, fortunately, I think that what has always been a big misunderstanding is becoming more relevant to people. I think for the longest time, generations of folks thought that the natural resources of this world were infinite, that we couldn't destroy them at the pace that we really are. And I think that we collectively thought that the earth would just handle all the pressure that we were putting on it. And the thing of the thing that's true though, is that the earth will heal itself, but it's going to do some harm to the humans in order to heal itself. And so we really need to, to acknowledge and go back to on a wider scale, that notion of we cannot survive without the natural world. We are the natural world. We do not own it. We do not control it. We are a part of it. And so the damage we do to the environment, we're actually doing to ourselves. And I feel like that's becoming more and more um, understood in the greater mind and in the general public. People are really starting to open their eyes and say, hey, you know what? What we're doing is not working. We've got to change this path that we've gone down. And I think that is one of the biggest things is thinking that we are here in this world and we're not owning this world. Siobhan, why do you think people are suddenly, well, maybe it's not sudden, but coming to that realization? Is that because of extreme weather or just all the talk out there or is it what they see around them? I mean, what, what causes this? I think it is all of that, but I also think that it's the impact that people are beginning to personally experience. I think, you know, long 20 something years ago, we would all look at that, um, the polar bear flighty, uh, floating on the ice. And, you know, we would feel bad. We would feel bad. But it felt so far and so distant to us that it wasn't something that we could wrap our head around. That's not happening to me. That's happening over there. And now, you know, just here on Long Island, the damage that occurs to people's homes and their livelihood because of the extreme change in storm surge and the weather activity just makes it a little more relevant. I used to say all the time, you know, you can't really get somebody to appreciate and pay attention to something until it impacts them personally. It's like you talk about air quality, but if you're not someone who doesn't have um, asthma or if you're extremely sensitive to all the shifts in um, the pollen and the particulate matter, if those things don't bother you on a daily basis, you're really not thinking about it. So we can talk about air quality all the time, but it's something that may not impact your life unless you struggle with breathing. And now you're like, air quality is important. Sure, now it's personal. Right. Jeremy, your thoughts? When I think of um, that question, I think a lot about our American um, country and the founding of the nation and how there was that misunderstanding that if the land wasn't being utilized, if it wasn't farmland, if it wasn't being industrialized and it was wasted land, it was either that or it was vacant land. And both of those things are not true. And yet that mindset still exists today. The idea that if there's not a mansion, if there's not a store, if it's not a public park or a parking lot, then it needs to be uh, bought, it needs to be developed. And so just looking at this um, area, 
in the satellite overview, you could just see that whatever is not green is overdeveloped and whatever is green probably has a real estate sign next to it. And so um, that's one thing that's always frustrating because we exist on a sliver of land today and trying to uh, regain any of that land to uh, steward it once again or just have the right to access it is uh, so impossible economically. And so um, I think that that mindset needs to change. Um, the other unfortunate thing being in the Hamptons, yeah. um, everyone knows the wealth, everyone knows um, unfortunately the greed as well. Mm. And so usually what happens with the land, which is the most valuable resource out here, is it goes to the highest bidder. The highest bidder is allowed to do whatever they want. And if they do break any environmental laws, um, they pay a minor fee. And so it's really just a, a playground to uh, the wealthy. And so it's very difficult because, as Siobhan said, um, there is an, uh, a, a shellfish economy that Shinnecock wants to thrive. It, it wants to be healthy. But then you depend on outside parties to treat that water the same way, the same respect. And that doesn't uh, ever happen. We've spoken about a number of the environmental issues that are uh, confronting the Shinnecock Nation and, and the rest of Long Island, for that matter, and some of your traditions and approaches to these problems. I, I'd like to conclude the conversation by asking you this from your perspective, thinking about, again, uh, Shinnecock knowledge, culture, traditions. What do you most want listeners here who are thinking about the natural world in, in, in which we all live? to take away from this conversation. And Jeremy, why don't you go first with that? What do you want people to take away from this? Well, Siobhan's doing such great work and already has so much on her plate. But one thing that um, is always so staggering to me is the fact that um, Shinnecock has been uh, stewarding this land for thousands of years, and somehow we haven't caused um, environmental catastrophe. We haven't caused uh, climate change. And yet that same wisdom is not being invited to the table when it comes to um, how land is uh, used, uh, what land is developed, what land is preserved. And so I hope one day that um, individuals like Siobhan are invited to the table um, and are compensated for their time, their expertise. And really, um, Shinnecock especially has a stake in trying to preserve our local environment uh, more than anyone else. And yet we just have to sit at the margins. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate that. And, you know, just following up on exactly what Jeremy was saying, that is one of the poor, one of the most important things that I would like people to hear and take away and to think and remember and try to encourage is that we all have to be able to get together. We all have to be able to sit at the table, you know, uh, tribal nations, local municipalities, state governments, federal governments, regionally nationwide these are discussions and decisions in our pockets and our different corners of the world that we need to be sitting together and learning from each other and sharing from each other and respecting how each individual views the natural world and then learning from that and so i think it's a collective we have to begin to work together and respect each other's perspectives and i think that would be so helpful and just like a big step. It's just we're all getting to the table and we're all equally being heard and respected and our input is valued. Siobhan Smith, Jeremy Dennis, thanks to you both for taking the time to share your insight and your perspectives on the Shinnecock relationship to the natural world and 
what the wider community can, can, can learn from that. Jeremy, good luck with your photography and the stories you're telling. Yeah, thanks so much. Siobhan, good luck with your work. And uh, I hope the, the wider community pays close attention and listens and you sit down and get some real things done. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk. It has been a great pleasure and, and privilege. A reminder that The American Buffalo, a film by Ken Burns, premieres on WLIW 21 on October 25th. It will explore the American buffalo's evolution, near extinction, and relationship to the indigenous people of North America. And while there were not many American buffalo on Long Island, there certainly have been indigenous people there for a very long time, for centuries, millennia, and there's a lot to be learned. Major funding for the American Buffalo was provided by the Better Angels Society and its members, the Margaret A. Cargill Foundation Fund at the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundation, Diane and Hal Byerly, the Keith Campbell Foundation for the Environment, John and Catherine Debs, Kissick Family Foundation, Fred and Donna Siegel, by Jacqueline Mars, John and Leslie McCon, and Mr. and Mrs. Paul Tudor Jones. Funding was also provided by the Volgenau Foundation and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and by contributions to your PBS station and from listeners like you. I'm Frank Sesno. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of WLIW-FM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. <laughs>